Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we are members of your body and that that's so much greater than belonging merely to a local church congregation. We belong to the body of Christ, the saints through every epoch of time, to the church that is triumphant even as we wait for the return of Christ. And we thank you that our membership in that body, that great congregation, is won for us by the work of Jesus on the cross, that it has come to us by grace. And through that, Lord, you call us your beloved children, and we praise you for that. Um, Lord, I do pray for some folks in our church congregation who are in the process of healing. We first thank you that Ron has been able to come back home, and I pray that we'd be able to see him back with us on a Sunday soon. We pray for Martha, who's recovering from surgery. We pray for Anita, who's recovering from surgery, and Melody as well. God, we ask that you would give them all a speedy recovery and encourage their souls while they're away from our body and restore them to us quickly. And we thank you that your word says that you hear the prayers for the sick and afflicted. So we present these things to you and pray for them on their behalf, uh, that you would be near to them in this time of recovery. And we thank you for an opportunity to gather together and to study your word together. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us out of Genesis, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So I'd love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis 23. Today will be maybe a little bit different than uh, things have been as we've made our way through Genesis. You'll see why shortly, but we're coming to the end of the Genesis account of Abraham and Sarah. We've been following them for quite a while, and soon the story is going to shift to focus on their son Isaac and the way that God continues to bring about his promises through Isaac. But in preparation for that transition today, we have to observe the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And then in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at the death of Abraham. Uh, but thus far in Genesis, I want to point out to you that no characters that we've encountered in the story thus far have really been emotionally exposed to us in quite the same way that Abraham and Sarah have. We've hopefully come to know and love these characters and in some ways um, kind of knit our hearts to theirs. Uh, you know, the Bible is true and it's history and it's factual, but I've been saying through Genesis that it's also just beautiful storytelling. And I think if you read Genesis slowly, you begin to have an affection for these characters. We've shared in their experiences. We've seen their faults and failures. We've come to realize they're very much like us in those ways. We've seen their hopes and joys as they trust on God's promises and wait for him to deliver. And again, if you read Genesis slowly like the historical account that it is, it's only appropriate that many of these characters would grow to be beloved people as you walk with them through the story of their lives. And so it is that in Genesis 23, we're going to kind of enter into Abraham's sadness a little bit here, his grief as he buries his beloved wife, Sarah. 
They've been married for something like 100 years at this point. So raise your hand if you've been married 100 years. <laughs> so we can celebrate the life of Sarah, and uh, we can celebrate their marriage. Sarah is specifically mentioned by name in Hebrews chapter 11 as a woman who should be con- commended for her faith. Now, just before I uh, read the text for us, out of curiosity, has, raise your hand if you've been married 50 years. Are you willing to acknowledge that? 50 years. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, seriously, you can applaud for those folks. In a, in a culture that says that, like, marriage is no big deal and, like, when it stops making you happy, just get out of it. And, like, these people are to be commended. They're examples to the rest of us uh, in the work that they have done to humble themselves and love their spouse. So praise God for that. We're thankful for you all and your example to us. Um, let's read Genesis 23 together. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns." It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead." Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, East of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So two characters are suspiciously absent from the narrative at this point, and maybe you noticed. First, there's no mention of Isaac. 
And we don't know why that's the case because the text doesn't tell us. But we are going to see at the end of chapter 24 when we get there that Isaac was obviously grieved over the death of his mother, Sarah. And we're going to be told in chapter 24 that he would find some comfort in his grief through his marriage to Rebekah. For now, we can simply mention that Isaac at this point was 37 years old. So we've been watching him kind of progress over the last couple of chapters. Now he is uh, a full-grown man at this point. But the other character who doesn't enter into our text, did you notice, is God. He is not present anywhere in this text other than this brief acknowledgement in verse 6 that Abraham is sort of this treasured possession that belongs to God, that he's a prince of God. But other than that, God is not present in this part of Genesis. And God, if you've been paying attention, he's kind of popped in and out of the narrative at various points. He's been more uh, explicitly present in the text at some, in some chapters and then less explicitly present. Of course, we understand that God is present in every moment of the Genesis narrative because he is the one bringing these things to pass, ensuring the promises that he has made to Abraham. But I think there's a reason why God does not explicitly appear in this scene. Because I think that this is, uh, not, not I think, this is the only moment in Abraham's life when Abraham actually comes to own a piece of property in the promised land. Isn't that interesting? Abraham's a nomad. He's been given permission by the various tribes of the Canaanites to dwell in this land that God promised to give to him and his children. But Abraham owns none of it. And although God has promised to give it to his descendants, God intends to make good on that promise, not in a natural way, but in a supernatural way. God does not intend for Abraham to become wealthy and then buy up various plots of land in Canaan to fulfill the promise God has made to him. God intends to give this land to Abraham. And so while I think Abraham is totally justified to buy a burial plot for his wife, this scene, I believe, excludes God specifically because God intends for Abraham to inherit this land from God, not by it from the Canaanites. But this scene does once again reveal Abraham's great faith. I mean, this is what we've been tracing all through Genesis, that Abraham is a man of great faith. I said a few weeks ago that Abraham planted a tree in Canaan, and I said that I think that kind of shows that Abraham has realized towards the end of his life that he does indeed have dominion over this land. God is giving it to him. He's seeing that promise come true. But now, Abraham buys a tomb. And I think this purchase shows that Abraham does indeed see this land as his home, even though he's a foreigner and a sojourner. He does not intend to carry the remains of his wife back to the land of his origin, back to the place where his family dwells, the land of Haran, but instead, Abraham buries his wife in a place where he knows that his descendants, his children, and his children's children will be able to visit her tomb 
and be able to honor the matriarch of this family. Abraham believes that God's going to make good on this promise, and so it makes sense for Sarah to be buried in the land that his children will inherit. And so he lays her to rest in this place, knowing that his children's children will be able to see her grave, her tomb, in the generations to come. I think this is one more small but important action that shows that Abraham is indeed a man of great faith. Even though he's burying his wife, he believes that God is still going to make good on this promise. Now the chapter begins with Abraham mourning the death of his beloved son. It's actually not a very long part of the chapter where that scene unfolds. The majority of the scene centers around this business transaction between Abraham and Ephron of the Hittites. And there's some evidence that Abraham and Ephron are engaging in probably like an ancient um, business transaction negotiation. You know, there's sort of this like tone of bartering here. But I'm not going to get into the intricacies of that. Instead, I want to just look at Abraham's behavior. To begin with, we can see that Abraham is well-respected among the Canaanites. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw Abimelech, who is a great king among the Canaanites. He came to Abraham and he wanted to engage in kind of a peacekeeping treaty with Abraham. Abimelech was a powerful king. And I pointed out at that point, it's interesting that a powerful king would be coming to a foreigner and a sojourner asking to enter into a covenant that they would treat each other well. We've seen that God has truly blessed this man, Abraham. Well, now in chapter 23, we get a similar picture. The Hittites are rather deferential to Abraham. They permit him access to their property to bury his wife. They're going to let a foreigner actually own property among them. More than that, in verse 6, they refer to Abraham as a prince of God. They notice that behind this man is a powerful God who has provided so that Abraham is a great man. Abraham's reputation, therefore, precedes him. But the unfolding story has made clear to us as the reader, and also it's making clear now to the neighbors of Abraham, that Abraham is great Not because of Abraham, but because of God's hand on his life. These prominent men, sort of the leaders of the Hittites, sitting around the city gate, they recognize that Abraham is a great man because behind his greatness is a great God who has blessed him and kept him and provided for him. And Abraham is not enticed by their flattery. Did you notice that? Instead, I think Abraham gives us here a really great picture of how we as believers should deal with pagans. And by pagans, I mean godless people. Secular people would be pagans today, people who are just far from God. Abraham has lived among these pagans. He's built a great reputation among them. But in verse 4, he reiterates this important fact that he is not one of them. He is distinct from them. He's lived many years in this land, but in all of those years, he has never chosen to become like the people of Canaan. 
He continues like he did back in the days of Sodom. Do you remember that? When he lived apart from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, living in the land of promise that God said he was going to give him, but also living distinct from the people that occupied that land. And his choice to remain distinct and apart from them, it continues even now into his old age. Decades later. And so in verse 6, the Hittites offer to Abraham that he can share some of their burial space. I think the implication here is like, hey, Abraham, we've already got like a graveyard. We've got tombs. Like, go ahead and put your wife in any one of them. We're happy to share with you. And then in verse 11, Ephron says that Abraham can just have the tomb that Abraham desires. Now, maybe there is some negotiating here that we don't really understand and he doesn't mean it. But in a shame culture, Abraham could have accepted it and Ephraim would have been obligated to give it to him. But even when the negotiation reaches the point where a price is named in verse 15, did you notice that Abraham does not negotiate and the 400 shekels is really a pretty extortionary price. This is not a fair rate for this piece of property. And yet Abraham refuses to negotiate. He pays the full asking price. And the reason is simple. It's consistent with how Abraham has always lived among these people since way back in Genesis 14. Do you remember that scene when Abraham goes out to war to rescue his nephew Lot? And in the process, he fights these kings, one of them being the king of Sodom. And he rescues these kings, including the king of Sodom. He's blessed by Melchizedek. And after all that goes down, the king of Sodom says to Abraham, Abraham, why don't you keep the spoils of war? Just give me back my family members. And do you remember what Abraham says at that point? He refuses the offer. He refuses any kind of reward. And he says to the pagan king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. So the point is that after all this time living in Canaan, Abraham has taken nothing from these people other than the kindness that they've offered to let him dwell in the land. Abraham has placed himself entirely under the provision of God alone. He has dedicated himself wholly, entirely to the Lord. And the reason is clear, because just as verse 6 points out, we already discussed. Now everyone in the land of Canaan who hears of the fame of Abraham can see that Abraham is a prince of God. Abraham is a powerful man because God is behind him. It is not the Canaanites who have blessed him and made him rich and contributed to his ascendancy. It is only the work of God. Abraham is blessed because God has poured out blessing upon him. So Abraham refuses any kindness once again from these people, the Hittites in this instance, so that he can remain unstained so that he can remain distinct from them. He owes them nothing. They have no claim on him. He's not one of them. They cannot assert that he is blessed because of their kindness to him or their association with him. 
And I hope you can see the implications for your own life. We live among pagans. We are very much like Abraham. We are strangers in a strange land. We are sojourners. We are simply passing through this life on our way to a better land. And I think the pagans that we live among would love nothing more than to claim some kind of power over us, some kind of obligation that we have to them. They would love nothing more than to have us assimilate with them, be associated with them, compromise our commitment to God in order that we might curry favor among them. They would love to, be, they would love to persuade us to syncretize, to take what they have and find a way to integrate it into what we have, that we might owe to them safety or security or identity. And Abraham is an example for us. Like Abraham, we must remain steadfast to be set apart, to be distinct, to be wholly devoted to God alone. Let me put it this way. You can either be a prince of God among a pagan world, or you can be welcomed among the pagans as a member of their tribe, but you cannot be both. And if you want the praise of the pagans, then you're going to have to turn your back on God. And if you want to be commended and approved by God, then you're going to have to deny the praise of men. And I don't know about you, but I would rather go to my grave under the pleasure of God, seeing him smile upon me and my life, than compromise with pagans in order that they might, be, they might accept me, that I might be welcomed among them. Now, preachers more intelligent and gifted than me could probably mine this text for a whole bunch of other things to say and apply uh, but since I'm not more intelligent or gifted, I'm going to go in a totally different direction, okay? Uh, since we've got a little bit more time, I think that this would be an appropriate opportunity for us to talk a little bit about, like, the Christian theological perspective on the subject matter of death. Sarah dies and Abraham grieves. And I would be willing to bet that a lot of Christians don't really have a very developed theology when it comes to the subject matter of death. Like we know that death happens and then there will be resurrection, but like what about all the rest of it? So I want to address the topic of death in the hopes that I can encourage you to think biblically about it. This unfortunately, just because of time, it's not going to be like a deep dive into this subject matter, but I hope to kind of lay a, a firm but shallow foundation for you as you think about this topic. And I'm just going to warn you as well that this is going to be like an intellectual approach, not an emotional approach. Um, I understand that obviously connected to death is a wide array of deep feelings of grief and sorrow and sadness. And I'm not going to get into that this morning. I just want to kind of lay some of the basic factual things regarding death that Scripture teaches. So let's begin by remembering back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where God tells, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but 
I, I give you these references kind of quick in case you ever want to like go back to the YouTube or the audio and be like, I know he said that, but I want to double check what he meant or what, what the text says. But Genesis 2 verse 17, God tells Adam that if he disobeys this command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then what will occur is man will die. If Adam and Eve disobey God's command, man will die. And so death is the consequence of sin. That's why it's awful. That's why it's despairing. That's why its shadow looms large over the life of every person. And unless you're basically a soulless, calloused human being, you can't get near to death experientially without sorrow. And I think that this is a deep reminder that God has given to man that we turned our backs on him in rebellion and the consequence is tragic. Disobedience leads to ruin. And the most obvious proof of that is that man will die for his disobedience. Because of our fallen nature, because we have a sin nature, we will all taste death. And death was not built into creation at the outset. Everything that God made, he declared that it was good. He said in the final stages of creation, as he rested, that what he had made was very good. And at that point, what was conspicuously absent from creation? Death. The tragedy of death then entered into creation when man decided that he wanted more than what God had determined was enough for him. And all people, therefore, will die like Sarah, again, because humanity is fallen. But I want you to understand that for us as believers, death is also a great mercy from God. Do you understand this? I think it speaks to the wonderful power of our God that even in the consequence of our sin, which on one level is death, that is infused with mercy. God has managed, not managed, God is powerful enough to even infuse the consequence of our sin, death, with mercy. Genesis 3 verse 22 tells us that God said, Behold, the man has become like us knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent Adam out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, maybe you already conceptually, experientially understand this, but to live forever in a fallen world like this, among the tragedy and ruin and devastation of our sin, doesn't something in your soul whisper to you that that would be awful? It would be hellish for those of us who know that God has glory in store for humanity in redemption. 
And so God was merciful to Adam and Eve that he barred them from the tree of life and prevented them from living forever, preventing us from living forever in the current condition in which humanity is. And so in this sense, death is just like the cross. It's both a horror on one hand, and it's a grace on the other hand. It's used by God both for judgment and also as an act of kindness. And God hates death, and the way that I know that is because 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 says that the last enemy that will be destroyed by God is death. God intends to destroy that great enemy of man. But for a time, death serves God's purposes as a corrective tool to bring mankind to repentance and to humble us. We are fragile. We are frail. And that should lead us to look to a God who is powerful. Next, we might wonder why Abraham buried Sarah. Why do that? Why have the people of God throughout history chosen to bury their dead, primarily? As far as Christianity is concerned, it's only a recent phenomenon that Christians have started cremating their dead. The vast majority of Christians since the time of Jesus, and we might say the vast majority of God's people, the Israelites prior to that, all chose to bury their dead. And there's three reasons for this. First, it's good for us to, re to remember those who came before us and whose lives have set an example of holiness for us. That we might appreciate their wisdom. That we might be encouraged by the example they gave to us. Jesus himself said that God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which calls us to remember those great people who came before us, whose lives were exemplary, that we might model our lives after them. And so burial provides a tangible place of remembrance where the people of God might go and recall that great cloud of witnesses who blazed this trail ahead of us and who achieved what we are daily striving to achieve in obedience to Jesus. The second reason why Christians have buried their dead is because Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God made the world good. He made it very good. The material world is a reflection of the goodness of God. Most uh, other faiths where they do cremation, things like um, faiths like Buddhism and Hinduism, they have a reason why they burn their dead. Did you know that they believe that actually the soul, which is good, is trapped in the body, which is material and therefore evil? And in order to liberate the soul after death, they burn their dead bodies, that the soul might escape. Well, as Christians, we reject this dualism. We recognize that the world that we live in because of sin, is diminished, it is corrupt, it has a stain upon it. But the universe that God made, it remains good fundamentally. And the material that God made 
is good. It's not inherently evil. Both the soul and the body in the Christian worldview are good. And burial reminds us that the dirt that we came from and the dirt to which we will one day return is in fact part of God's good creation. Which leads us to the most important reason why Christians have chosen historically to bury their dead. And maybe you expected this one. It's the belief in the resurrection. Our bodies laid in the ground declare to an unbelieving world that death is not the end of this story. The power and dominion of death has been overcome by the greater power of Christ in his resurrection. The finality of death itself has been destroyed and Christians choose to be buried to declare that truth to the world. Now, I should add here, the Bible does not forbid cremation. It's not immoral. There's no command in Scripture that says you cannot or should not do that. And I would say for many people today, burial has become so expensive that it's wise to not leave that burden to your children if it's going to cause them to go into debt. So it is morally okay as a Christian to be cremated. I used to want to be cremated and have my ashes shot into space. I thought that that'd be awesome. Just... But as I've reflected on this more over the last couple of years, I want to be buried. And I want to be buried because I want the world to know I'm coming back. This is not the end. Christ has won. I want my life even in death to testify to the resurrection of the dead. And did you know that we actually have an interesting example in Scripture of God himself burying someone? It happens at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses dies. In chapter 34, the Bible records this. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. God actually buried Moses. Isn't that interesting? This brings us to the next point concerning death, which is that because man is made in the image of God, even in death, humans are deserving of dignity. Why didn't God just leave Moses' body? In fact, the, one of the reasons why God buries Moses is because God does not want the Israelites to venerate Moses and worship him at his tomb. So God buries him so that his resting place will be secret. But why not just leave the dead body of Moses on a mountaintop for the jackals and the sparrows, not the sparrows, the birds, the vultures, to eat him. Why not do that? That would be a great way to make him disappear and no one would ever know where he laid. Why would God bury him and not just leave him to be exposed to the elements? Well, the reason is because man is made in the image of God. Man is imbued with dignity that reflects the glory and majesty of God. And burial for the dead honors God in that regard. Out of respect for God, even in death, humans are treated with dignity. We don't worship the dead. 
We don't worship our ancestors. We worship God alone, but out of a desire to see his name honored, his glory in us respected, we treat the bodies of the dead with honor. This is why something like a mass grave is a horror. It's not merely a horror because of the evil done to the people that are tossed in the grave when their lives were taken, and that is a great evil. But it's also a horror because it robs those people of the dignity that they deserve that honors the God who made them. And interestingly, in Revelation 19, God permits the bodies of his enemies there You can read the end of that chapter at home. Those who are defeated by Christ in this final battle, their bodies are laid on the battlefield for the birds to come and gorge themselves on their flesh. Because as persistent, unrepentant enemies of God, their own, they have forfeited their own divine dignity. And therefore, in death, they deserve no honor or respect. Birds devouring their bodies is one more judgment upon them for their rebellion. They get no burial. So what about what happens after death? Well, as Christians, we know because God has told us and revealed to us. We don't wonder about what happens. We know with certainty that for the Christian... When the soul leaves the body, we go immediately to be with the Lord. Now, humans are a psychosomatic unity. Suke is the Greek word for soul. Soma is the Greek word for body. And so when we say that we're a psychosomatic unity, to be human does not mean merely that you have a soul or merely that you have a body, but that you have a body and soul that are forever together and one. Humans are a unit comprised of both soul and body. And God's ultimate intention for his people is that for all eternity, as we live with him forever in heaven, we will have a soul and a physical, resurrected, material body. After the resurrection... In eternity, you will not be some vague spirit with wings and a harp hovering in the clouds. You will be you. You will have a glorified material body. But there's this time before the resurrection, as history continues to unfold, this time that we are in right now, when death causes the soul to be absent from the body, which means that the soul is present with the Lord while we wait for the final resurrection. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise, but the resurrection has not yet happened. So after death, we join the saints of heaven in some kind of fully conscious but temporary state While we wait for the return of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies, when our soul and our body will once again be united forever in this glorified flesh, in eternity with God. 
Now, I wouldn't say much more than that because the Bible, I don't think, mentions much more. This is an area of kind of ambiguity and some mystery. It's sufficient to say that upon death, the Christian goes to be with Jesus to await the resurrection from the dead and the judgment, the final judgment. But I want to address something else kind of at this point, and that is this really sensational claim that I'm sure you've heard and that pops up from time to time that some people have died and gone to heaven and then come back to like write books or tell stories on Oprah about their experience. Now it is true if you read your Bible that throughout Scripture there are a few really unique and amazing moments where people rise from the dead people other than Jesus. But we're told next to nothing about what that experience is like for those people. We're better off not not speculating. There's simply not enough details revealed to us to reach any kind of conclusions. We can only know on this subject matter as much as the Bible tells us. And instances of resurrection in Scripture are so rare that I would say it's not wise for us to believe that this has happened in any instance other than the few that the Bible itself mentions. The resurrections recorded in the Bible were unique moments where God displayed his power for very particular purposes. This is not common, and these are not generally applicable displays of how God chooses to work among his people generally. So I would say it is best for us to be skeptical of these claims. A few years back, there was a book that became popular uh, in Christian circles. Maybe you've heard of it or maybe you've read it. I think they even made a movie about it called Heaven is for Real. It supposedly told the story of a boy who went to heaven and came back. There was another recent book like it called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. That book became a New York Times bestseller. Maybe you read that one as well. Did you know that five years after it became a New York Times bestseller, the family confessed that they made the entire thing up and the book is no longer published as a result? So I would say this subject matter is rife with kind of fraud and deceit. It's an area where we should be very skeptical. That's why I personally am skeptical. And what I would encourage us to do is simply stand firmly on what God's Word teaches us. And with the boundary of God's Word in mind, I think the only clear discussion we get about this subject matter comes to us from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after comes judgment. Which is to say that apart from those very few exceptions recorded for us in Scripture, God gives each person one shot at life, one death, and then judgment. And so I confidently, firmly stand in this camp that is skeptical, highly doubtful of any claims 
that people have died and gone to heaven and been with Jesus and come back to speak about it outside of what Scripture tells us. And I think that actually it's a little bit dangerous for us to feed the desire to know more, to go beyond what God has revealed to us in His Word. Did you know that the Apostle Paul tells about an experience that he had where he was caught up into heaven. This is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, chapter 12. And he says in verse 4 that whatever is beyond this earthly life, God did not permit Paul to talk about it. It's meant to be a secret. Paul was able to see it, but he was forbidden to speak about it. And I think we should understand that God has things in store for us that are so great that he does not intend for us to know them yet. And when we go looking for revelations of the afterlife beyond what Scripture teaches, I think we reveal that we are discontent with what God has told us. And we're discontent with the provision that he has made for us now. And rather than go seeking those things, we should seek to find Christ in this moment, in this life, in this experience that God has given us now. Now, of course, it's natural to be curious. I only want you to resist the temptation to go looking outside of what God has revealed, to trust that what God has said is enough, and to hunger not for the things that are not revealed, but to hunger for the things that already are revealed. Truly, do we know this well enough that we're prepared to say, I'm ready to go looking beyond it now? I don't. I have much more to learn from what God has spoken in his word. So let us not get greedy to know secrets that God has chosen to hide from us for now. Let us instead share the faith of Abraham and trust that God has not revealed it all to us yet. And this brings us to my final point on death and what happens afterward. What we do know, my friends, what has been revealed to us is so utterly glorious. What more should we even rejoice in or reflect on or go looking for? There is enough for us to marvel at. Consider this. Sarah's body that was buried something like 4,000 years ago in that tomb, and our bodies will one day be raised from the dead. We will go to dwell with God forever in eternity. Death is defeated. Christ has risen and in his victory, we share in that same resurrection life by faith. One day after death at the resurrection, our bodies somehow will be reconstituted by the sovereign power of God, restored, and we will be made new. That's incredible. What goes into the ground perishable, Scripture says, destined to decay, will be raised by the power of God imperishable to live forevermore in the presence of God to the glory of Christ Jesus. 
The bodies that we see now, these bodies, they are transient, and yet somehow they are connected to our eternal, resurrected, glorified bodies and the things that are yet unseen by us, and those things are eternal, everlasting, forevermore. And just as Abraham paid the full legitimate burial price for the property in which his wife would be buried, the 400 shekels, so too Christ Jesus has paid the full legitimate price for our redemption and our resurrection. An infinitely high price. Not so that we would have a tomb, but so that we would have an eternal inheritance in his kingdom in heaven. And this scene from Genesis 23, I would say, is one more foreshadowing of the gospel here in Genesis. Because Abraham and Sarah, they did not receive the inheritance that God promised to them. God promised to give them land, but they didn't receive it in this life. Instead, it was only after they died in the generations that would follow them, in the children that would come after them, that Israel would receive this promised land. And so it is with us. We have the promise of an eternal inheritance that God has secured for us. But that promise is only going to fully come into reality once we pass from this life to death and through death into life again by the resurrection work of Christ. So we don't cling to this world. We don't put our hope in this world. We don't look forward to things that are seen. We don't fear death. We don't worry over death. Rather, we courageously rejoice in the hardship and the suffering in this life, in the grief and the sorrow that we must pass through as strangers, foreigners, nomads in this land. But as we do that, we look forward to an eternal inheritance, which we know that God will be faithful to deliver to us in his perfect timing. Let's pray. God, I pray that these facts, this information about what your word teaches us would be enough for us And that it would encourage us, that we would find hope and joy in it. I pray that we would be content with mystery and with not knowing. And Lord, I pray that whatever claim about revelation might come to us, that we would always be faithful to go back to your word and say, what has God revealed? And we thank you for the inheritance that you have set aside for us. That even though we must pass through death because of the consequence of sin, we thank you that that is not how the story ends. That because Christ was raised, death has been defeated. Death has no victory or sting for those who are in Christ. And I pray that we would wait with eager expectation for the resurrection. 